Good evening, good yantif. It's so great to see all of you up here in the mezzanine tonight. It's really wonderful that you're all here. There were hooligans in Rabbi Mayer's neighborhood who caused him a great deal of anguish. Rabbi Mayer prayed to God that the hooligans should die. Rabbi Mayer's wife, Broria, said to him, what are you thinking, babe? On what basis do you pray for the death of these hooligans? Are you basing your words on the verse from Psalm 104, where it is written, Yitamu chataim min ha'aretz? Are you translating those words as, let sinners cease from the land? Sweetheart, are you serious? Do you actually understand this verse to mean that the world would be better if the wicked were destroyed? The word is not chot'im, which means sinners. It is chata'im, which means sins. Let their sins cease, is what the verse teaches us. One should pray for an end to their transgressions, not for the demise of the transgressors. Give the guys a chance. Be'arachame, ilavaihu, ve'hadaru, bichuvah. Rabbi Mayer realized his wife was correct. He immediately recognized that he should not have asked God to have them killed. He told Beruria that she was right. He felt bad, had big time regret about his original prayer. So once again, he prayed to God, Ribono shall oilam, if only I hadn't said what I said to you, I'll never ask you to kill anyone ever again. This time, Rabbi Mayer asked God to have mercy on the hooligans. And what do you know? They repented. Thank you, Broria, for schooling your husband. And thank you, Talmud, for documenting this domestic argument. Could you imagine if everyone who messed up was killed? Covet your neighbor's shoes? Death. Gossip? Death. Death, 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 death. Steal a chocolate bar? Death. Miss one day of shaking lulav and etrog? Death. Come on, that's not how it works for us. That's not our system. We are the tshuva people. We know we're not perfect. None of us are. How often do you look back on your life and wish you had done things differently? In Daniel Pink's book, The Power of Regret, research showed that only 1% of respondents said they never engage in such behavior. We are all chot'im. We all know we have been off here and there. We all experience regret. While regret is an essential part of our experience for the next 24 hours, regret is also an essential component of the human experience. People, all people, regret a lot of stuff. Family relationships, romantic choices, career moves, educational paths, and more. Regrets are thoughts that begin with, if only I'd. If only I'd actually delivered on the promise I made. If only I'd picked up the phone instead of sending an email. If only I'd paused to speak to that person instead of judging that person on their looks. The challenge of if onlys is that they deliver discomfort and distress. If onlys make us feel worse. And that's okay. We are permitted to be uncomfortable today of all days. That's why many of us are not eating and drinking or showering, which we'll feel more tomorrow. For the most part, regret falls into four core categories. Number one, there are foundation regrets, our failure to be responsible, conscientious, or prudent. And these are the biggies. 
Pink describes these as the decisions we make that eventually cause the platform of our lives to wobble and our futures not to live up to our hopes. Number two, there are boldness regrets. This is when we regret that we didn't take chances. Usually what haunts us is the inaction itself. There are moral regrets. These are when we behave poorly. These usually ache the most. These regrets sound like, if only I'd done the right thing. These are more likely to involve actions than inactions. And there are connection regrets, fractures, or unrealized relationships with spouses, partners, parents, children, siblings, friends, classmates, colleagues. These regrets arise when we neglect the people who help establish our own sense of wholeness. Is this resonating for anyone? We abuse, we betray, we are cruel, we destroy, we gossip. On Yom Kippur, many of the actions of both the long and short Vidui's confessionals, they fall into these four categories. So how did the rabbis know about regret in this way? Well, they knew some Torah, especially the beginning of the Torah. At first, when they opened the book, they encountered a lack of regret. When Cain killed Abel, we do not read about Cain regretting what he did. Rather, when God asked Cain where Abel was, he famously responded, am I my brother's keeper? And then he ran away to the land of Nod. Two chapters later, the concept of regret is introduced, though, in a major way. Immediately before we meet Noah, we read, And God regretted having made humankind on earth. With a sorrowful heart, God said, I will blot out from the earth humankind whom I created, humans together with beasts, creeping things, and birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. God regretted creating humanity. God was sad. God had a sorrowful heart. I find this remarkable. Now, we may not like God's solution. The flood was rather harsh. But nevertheless, God experiencing regret is a moment of divine self-reflection. Even God has a sense of regret. So if regret is a divine emotion and we are created in the divine image, then it is something we should aspire to do. Just like the Talmud instructs us to follow God's attributes in clothing the naked, visiting those who are sick, and consoling mourners, we should experience regret too. Deepening this idea, Heschel said, God has an image and that is you. You may not make the image of God because you are the image of God. The only medium in which you can make God's image is the medium of your entire life. And that is precisely what we are commanded to do. So then regret is divine and it is part of creation and it is part of the way things are. Rabbi Bachia Ibn Pakuda, writing in Spain about a thousand years ago, wrote that regret is a sign that sin is disgraceful in the sinner's eyes. We ourselves can see in relationships between human beings that when one who wronged his fellow shows regret for having wronged him, this will be the strongest factor for his fellows granting him forgiveness. Yom Kippur, this 25-hour journey, is both about when we messed up in our relationships with people and our relationship with God. Messing up with people 
is messing up with God. The Rambam dedicated an entire section of his Mishneh Torah to the rules of teshuva, of repentance, of turning, of coming home to yourself. He outlined four steps to teshuva, and if you've heard them already, it's worth repeating year after year. Number one, we must recognize and discontinue the improper action. Number two, we must verbally confess the action, thus giving the action a concrete form in our minds. Number three, we must regret the action. Evaluate the negative impact this action may have had on yourself or on others. Confession and reconciliation without regret is somewhat empty. We need to feel it on the inside in order to fix it on the outside. And number four, we must determine to never repeat the action. Rambam instructs us to picture a better way to handle what we have done. <laughs> Easy, <laughs> right? <laughs> this past summer, Shai Davidai, an Israeli assistant professor at the Columbia Business School, spoke about regret on the Atlantic's How to Start Over podcast series. This is what he said. When people have these regrets of action, when they regret doing something, they're more likely to feel the hot emotions, anxiety and guilt. And these emotions are a call to action. They lead us to do something. Whereas the other kind of regrets of inaction, when we regret not doing something, we feel depressed or we feel sad. But that doesn't really give us that prompt to step up and change the situation. Now, Professor Davidai might have studied Rambam. After all, he speaks about Rambam's third and fourth teshuva steps. We need regret, and we need to change the situation and never do it again. Now, as much as my summer bestie, Idina Menzel, who spent part of her summer filming in this very building, saying in Rent, forget regret or life is yours to miss, Jonathan Larson missed the mark with that lyric. Regret should not have a stigma, and it should not be seen as negative. We need it. Daniel Pink believes that regret even has benefits. It can improve future decisions. It can boost performance. And my Rebbe, Brene Brown, she channels Rambam too when she says, to live without regret is to believe that you have nothing to learn, no amends to make, and no opportunity to be braver with your life. Our earlier rabbis were brilliant when they created the short vidui, Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, and they were also brilliant when they created the long list of alchets. And I'm not even talking about the fact that the alchets are listed alphabetically. I mean that the list even exists. How can we not review those lists without feeling regret over some of them? There are things we have done, and had they not been listed for us on a page of a machzor, we would not necessarily bring them up or think of them today, but they are there on the page. And while we might not have done all of them, we have done some of them. To deny that we have done any of them is to deny both our humanity and the divine spark within us. On Yom Kippur, we are fragile, we are vulnerable, and the liturgy leads us to regret our words, our actions, and our inactions. And some of us will regret more than others, but it is regret that is tying each and every one of us together tonight. It's what we all have in common. We're acting like God when he saw the behavior of Dorham Abul, the generation of the flood. When we regret, we reach out of our comfort zone. And when we regret, 
we also need to realize that we need to treat ourselves with self-compassion. Dr. Kristen Neff, the world expert on self-compassion writes, instead of mercilessly judging and criticizing yourself for various inadequacies or shortcomings, self-compassion means you are kind and understanding when confronted with personal failings. After all, whoever said you were supposed to be perfect. And that brings us to the choreography of the confessionals. More from Dr. Neff. When we open the doors of our heart, love goes in and old pain goes out. That is what we do when we bring our hands to our hearts during these Yom Kippur confessionals. We open the doors to our hearts to start the process of teshuva, to recognize, to confess, to regret, and to ensure we don't repeat. The first alchet is alchet shechatanu lefanecha ba'ones uveratzon. We have sinned against you unwillingly and willingly. Okay, but listen to the second one. Be'alchet shechatanu lefanecha be'imutz ha'lev. We have sinned against you by hardening our hearts. Our hearts need softening. We shouldn't bang. We should knock softly, as if we are hesitantly knocking on the door of a beloved. Kol dofek. We should knock gently onto the outermost doors of our hearts to open them to teshuva, to returning home. We should open our hearts to recognize what we did was wrong, to confess and name it, to regret it, and then ensure we don't do it again. We all make mistakes. Even Rabbi Mayer did. His wife surely let him know in the story I began with. And then he did proper teshuva. The confessionals of Yom Kippur, the recognizing, the confessing, the regretting, and the commitment not to do it again, that is teshuva. That is coming home to our innermost self. Nashuva, we come home on Yom Kippur. As we journey through this holiest day of our year, let's be like Rebbe Meir and recognize our wrongs, confess them, regret them, and then ensure we do not repeat and let's do it all with compassion. Gmar Chatimat Tova, may this be a meaningful Yom Kippur.